Welcome to this episode of Forgiving the Girl Inside, A Matter of the Heart. I'm your hostess, Lisa Drennan, and today we have the lovely Nina Corcoran, author of He Loves Me Not. And we were talking beforehand, and as soon as I saw that title of that book, all I could picture was myself as a little girl with a daisy in the hand, picking the puddles one by one. He loves me, he loves me not. So I just love that image and it was going to be the cover, but we have another cover. So I can't wait to see that. We're going to throw that in the description, but welcome. Thank you for being here. I'm excited to hear your, your heart story. So tell us a little bit about your journey. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, and my journey started a long time ago. Um, so my, my book, he loves me not is, a fictional story, but it's written about teen dating violence. And it's about a girl who just gets into a toxic relationship because she doesn't know any better. And so that is kind of the base of my story. Um, I met the man that I later married in the sixth grade. So we were 11 years old and um, no one had ever talked to me about what a toxic relationship was or what to look out for or what those red flags were. So I didn't know that at such a young age, you could be exposed to that kind of thing. And so um, even though at first when we were 11, it was just a kind of a friendship, a platonic, um, you know, just always in each other's lives kind of relationship. Um, but it had it had red flags looking back on it. And as that relationship developed into a romantic relationship, as we got older and, and then eventually a marriage, I had spent so long with those red flags that I didn't even recognize them. Um, and the true problem with that, in my opinion, is the fact that I became a police officer before I got married. And so I was completely trained and would have considered myself an expert in domestic mm -hmm. violence. And I missed all of it. I missed all those red flags. I could pick them out in someone else, um, but I never saw them in my own relationship. So that is almost for a long time, it was my darkest secret because I was so ashamed and embarrassed of the fact that I let that happen to myself. Um, and it truly goes to show that it does, it can happen to anyone because I would have said it could never happen to me. And it had essentially been happening to me my whole life. <laughs> yeah. And you're totally blinded by it because you didn't know that that wasn't normal. Absolutely. I had a similar experience. Yeah. I had a similar experience when I, I mean, when I was 15, I met my, my oldest father and total narcissist tendencies, gaslighting. And I didn't know I came from a dysfunctional family and I had no idea that that wasn't how relationships worked. And I mean, he would tell me to jump and I had asked how high he would lie to me. And then like, you know, my friends were saying he was cheating on me. I'd call him out on it and, Oh no, they're just jealous. And you know, I'm not doing that. And it's just like, Oh, okay. So yeah, I can feel that it was stirring up some memories. So what made you, so you had all this training, this professional training, Mm -hmm. And yet you weren't seeing it. So what was the, what was the point, your darkest moment that you snapped out of it and realized, well, I need to change this. So I had been a police officer for probably three, maybe, maybe going on four years. And, um, I had been, I had known this, this man, uh, for 15 years at that point, we had been married for a little over a year. And I went to 
a call on duty. I was working the night shift. Um, we, we patrolled alone in our own cruiser. Um, but there were other people on duty. And so, um, you know, I show up at this call and it was, a a domestic dispute, but not a violent one. It was a verbal kind of, you know, thrashing back and forth between two, a, a male and a female. And I went into the house and I'm, you know, sorting through everything. And I'm, I'm talking with both parties and I have this conversation with the female and I can tell from the way that she's talking to me that this is a toxic relationship that she's in. She is not in a good situation. She's making excuses. I can see it that like, it's right there in the back of her mind, but she won't quite bring it to the forefront. You know, I think she knows, but nothing that I say is going to bring it out kind of thing. And I'm almost angry because I want to help her so badly and she's just not ready to be helped. And, you know, there comes a point, and this is a really frustrating part of being a police officer is there comes a point where there really is nothing else you can do. Um, You know, if no crime has been committed, even if you know in your heart of hearts that, you know, something's wrong here. There's not there. There's a point where your hands are tied. And I reached that point with this woman and, um, I went back to my cruiser and, you know, I drive away a little bit and you kind of pull off to the road and you've got your computer and you, so you start to write notes and I'm sitting there and I'm writing my notes into the computer about the call. And I realized as I'm writing it, that everything I was writing could have had my own name in front of it. And it would have been true. And it was just like this slap in the face that I don't know where it came from, but it was just like, this is my life that I'm writing about. And I had a breakdown right there in my cruiser when I realized that everything that I just said to this woman applies to me too. Everything that I was angry about in her life, I was probably angry about because it applied to me. Um, And it was it was a terrifying experience because here I am thinking that I'm, you know, an expert in this and I got the the rug pulled right out from underneath me. I was like, if I, if I could miss this in my own relationship, what else am I missing? You know, I, I was completely blindsided and I sat there in my cruiser trying to collect myself and figure out what I was going to do. And I just, it, it was emotionally overwhelming to the point where I couldn't even sort out what way was up at that moment. Wow. I have the chills listening to you. That's incredible. So then what did you do next once you realized this? So luckily I was in because of, you know, the day of the week and the number of people we had on, I kind of went back to my station. I was like, you know what? I don't feel well. I'm going to go home. And my sergeant was like, yeah, no, no problem, whatever. Cause you know, it was, it was wintertime. So flu season was going around and we were just kind of like, yep, whatever. So I go home and I was like walking on eggshells for two days. Um, I was really looking, I feel like what I was looking for is like redeeming qualities. I was looking for proof that maybe I was wrong. I wanted to go home and see that, you know what, everything's actually fine. I'm overreacting like this. It was a, you know, some sort of just crazy night where I was thinking something that wasn't true or, you know, whatever. I was looking for anything to hold on to that this was, everything was going to be fine. And I didn't find that. In fact, I found all of the evidence that suggested I was missing even more than I thought I was missing. Um, 
And so it was just, it was two days of just eye-opening experiences where I was just like, I can't believe I've been living like this. Um, and in that two days, I, I thought my life was falling apart because here I was a female police officer, which on its own is a challenging situation because I had all male coworkers and I, at work, I had to kind of be this fearless badass to make sure that they knew I had their back, right? I, I always felt like I had to work harder than everybody else to prove that I could do my job. And so I was so afraid of all of them finding out that I was having these issues at home as if the word victim was going to completely ruin my career. Because how could I take care of them on the street if I couldn't even take care of myself in my own house? And so I just, I struggled so much because what was I going to do if I had tried to do anything, all of this was going to come out. So my career in, in my mind, my career was over. Or if I stayed, you know, I was going to be miserable. You know, I was a hypocrite because I was doing exactly what I would suggest to anyone else they don't do. So it was it was gut-wrenching to try to figure out what the hell am I going to do with my life at this point because there is no there's no way I can fix this without it tearing apart, falling completely apart. Wow. And, and so it took it took a best friend um to kind of talk me through things and convince me that I could leave without completely ruining my reputation. Um, luckily, he was really supportive and um, he was also a police officer. So I felt like he understood and he kind of helped me come up with my plan so that we could keep it as quiet as possible, but also get me somewhere safe. Um and so I sort of just disappeared from my house for about a week. Um, you know, my plan was I was going to leave for work like I always did, but then I just didn't come home. And I stayed in enough contact via text message with my um, now ex-husband so that he like knew I was alive. He wasn't going to, you know, do anything drastic like call 911 and report yeah, missing. Exactly. Like call the cops on you. But I you know, I think he thought that I was just mad about something and overreacting and was going to, you know, calm down and come home. And so during that time, I kind of collected myself in a safe environment and um, planned how I was going to end things. And divorce is a really scary word, even when you don't add in, you know, any sort of abuse or anything like that. It's a lot of people think that it's a failure. And so as soon as you start talking about divorce, people are like, oh, well, have you tried therapy? And have you tried this? And like, aren't you going to make it work? Or don't you want to try harder? And where I had only made it a year, quote unquote, for, you know, they, I had a lot of even family members that were like, well, why, why don't you try to work it out, you know, make it work. And I knew from my experience now at this point that that there's no changing that kind of behavior. You you either you either get out or you don't. So 
I had made up my mind that I needed to get out. It was just now, how was I going to do it? And uh, my ex was, or probably still is, but luckily I don't know, um, a very angry drunk. Um, He was very volatile. And like, that was definitely um, when he was at his worst. And so I was very nervous about showing up to kind of end things when he would be drinking which was kind of unpredictable because he was pretty much drinking all the time. Um, so it was kind of a gamble. And so I, you know, made plans with some friends to kind of be on call for in case things went sour really quickly. Um, so I kind of had backup in that situation and, um, I just, you know, I showed up and I said what I needed to say and, that, that that was it. It was just kind of like get it out there as quickly as possible. I'm I'm gonna be filing for this divorce and get out of there. And so luckily that that part of it went well for me and didn't come to needing backup. But uh, it was a scary experience and it really put into perspective some of the things that I had been saying to others over the years um, because it does seem like an easy thing to say you know, you, you should leave. Well, yeah, you should leave, but there's a lot of factors at play there. And, oh, yeah. and it's scary. It's terrifying. And I, even after, after ending things and once the, you know, divorce was in progress, cause it's a, it's a process and it's a process that's made harder when the other person wants to, you know, yeah. be a jerk. Um, but it's, there, there's a lot that goes into it and it's terrifying. And I lived in fear during that whole process and for a long time afterwards. And that was hard to say too, because I was supposed to not be afraid of anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine the thoughts that went through your head and trying to represent yourself as a, as a, you know, first responder and then doing your personal life, like it didn't mesh. So that battle that went inside with your thoughts must have been totally overwhelming. And yet you got through it and you were very strong and you came on the other side. What was the modality that you used to help you get through this? I did. So um, I did a lot of journaling, which helped me in a lot of different ways. Um, I have two degrees in um, English and creative writing, which is where my nerdy book writing habit came from. Um, so that was always sort of, even when I was a young child, journaling was kind of just where I went to like brain dump my thoughts onto paper. You know, I always felt better after getting things out of my head and into my journal. And I would just, even though sometimes the pages didn't even make sense, it was just, that's what I needed to do. And so I had always been doing that. Um, you know, I've even, even before I realized things, I probably wrote in a journal three, four times a week. And as I looked back on that, the signs were there. I was writing about things that I should have recognized were red flags. I was writing about gaslighting and like not remembering having certain conversations that he said we had or vice versa. And like, you know, I was even making notes of things we had talked about so that I would remember them later in case he denied them. And it was like, that's obviously gaslighting. Nina, you should know this. And as I'm looking through these pages, I'm like, I wrote about it and didn't notice, like just completely blindsided by how ignorant I could be 
to the situation. Um, so journaling became my outlet entirely as I went through this. And um, I was finding myself constantly writing about fears and writing about anxiety of, of what was going on with work and all of those kind of emotions of trying to fit all of this together. Um, and then I also got a dog because I feel like that's what people, people do when they need a best friend at the time. And um, because I was living in fear and I was living alone, I felt mm-hmm. like I needed a best friend. So I, I also got a dog who became, you know, someone I vented to when I wasn't writing in my journal. I was talking to my dog, which sounds, sounds so silly, but it's a thing that I did. <laughs> I talk to my dog all the time. <laughs> we have conversations. Yeah. <laughs> Our fur yeah. babies, they understand a lot. And they understand our body language so much. And I know at times when I've just been super sad, my little pups come up on my lap and will just give me kisses and it's okay, mama. Yeah, they know. <laughs> they they know exactly know. what you need. And that yes. was, that actually, you know, it, that played a huge part in me being able to feel not safe right away. Safe is a strong word, but comfortable being alone mm-hmm. in my house because you know, I got really lucky and got a great dog that just instantly bonded with me. And I knew like was protecting me, even though he might not have even known he was protecting me kind of thing. And I did, it helped me feel comfortable in my house at the time. Um, and eventually to feel safe again. So yeah, the power of the power of animal companionship. Yeah. I I have a question that wasn't you're not prepared for. So when did you, have you forgiven yourself? It took a long time. Um, and so we are talking now we're, we're six years later now, and I am happily married to a wonderful man. And, you know, in the sense of the word moved on. Um, but there are always moments where I'm questioning things because mm-hmm. at the back of my mind, I can't help but say, but you missed this before. Um, and so it took a long time to start to feel confident again in my judgment of people, um, especially especially at work, because I felt like, you know, mm-hmm. if someone could get that close to me and I could miss that many things like perfect strangers were probably pulling the wool over my eyes all the time. And that was something I had never experienced. I I felt confident when I went to work that I was getting to the bottom of things when I needed to, like, you know, when I was on the side of the road talking to someone and had that gut feeling that something wasn't right, like, you know, I trusted that. And so after this experience, I felt like my gut had betrayed me and it took a long time and a lot of support from others to start to feel like I could trust my gut again. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the most part, yes, I think that I have forgiven and I feel, I would say 95% confident in my abilities again. Um, but there's always, you know, that you have that bad day, you have that dark moment where you're just like that little voice in the back of your head and mine sounds an awful lot like my ex. And it'll just be like, you know, you could be wrong because you, mm-hmm. you were last time. Yeah. And, and so it, it was hard. It was, and it took a long time, but I, I think that I have 
I have forgiven myself. It's a daily healing journey. That's for sure. Um, yes. What would be one piece of advice that you would give to somebody going through something similar? So the first thing is you have to know what you're going through. Um, and that's a hard thing in these situations, especially when you're talking about someone you have known a long time. And remember that toxic relationships don't have to be romantic. So you can have toxic friendships, you can have toxic family relationships. So these could be people you've known your whole life. And when you realize that what those toxic behaviors are and what to be looking for, your whole perspective on the people around you can change very quickly. Um, so I guess my first piece of advice would be to know what those signs of toxic relationships are. And it's that is one reason why I wanted to write this book, because I want to teach those things at a very young age so that people do know what to look for, so that they don't waste 15 years of their lives chasing after a, a toxic relationship that's never going to be healthy. Um, and then my second piece of advice would be to be easy with yourself once you realize that you have made a mistake like that and let somebody in because beating yourself up doesn't make it any easier. And I definitely learned that the hard way. Yeah, that's it. Excellent, excellent piece of advice. And we have to remember too, especially the teen population, there's so much desire to want to be accepted and loved. And we're always looking for it. That age group is always looking for it from the outside. And, you know, when somebody pays attention to you, like your emotions are still forming, you're still growing. And, you know, especially if you come from a dysfunctional family, you have, you know, that, you know, they say the first five years of your life, you develop like who you are, how you're going to respond and all of that. So depending on those factors, you may never even develop that. I know I didn't understand what feelings were until I was 40 years old. I'm 53 now. So to go my whole entire life, everything just came out as anger. If I was happy, it was angry. It was just bizarre. Then never, no one ever said, okay, how do you feel? And if you did, like I have three older brothers, um, I wasn't allowed to cry, you know, because girls don't cry. You stop being a baby. You're like, what are you crying for? So like you learn to stifle up your emotions and, you know, to express yourself. And if you were happy, well, what are you smiling about? Why are you laughing? And now it's like, what? And I think back about those people who said those things. So yes, it could be in a, it could be in an extended family member. It could be your best friend. It could be a coworker. It could be a boss. Absolutely. And looking out for those signs and just being aware of it and just not, not questioning yourself because we still do our instincts that gut feeling is always there. And I remember I took a defense class a few years back. And they were saying, it's like, you're either going to get that, that feeling in your stomach, in your gut, or you're going to get like this thing in the back of your neck. So mine will alternate. And when you get it, pay attention because something's up, you know, that's, that's one of the biggest things. So I teach a, a women's self-defense class. And that's one mm -hmm. of the biggest things that we talk about is, especially for women, we're taught to be polite. You know, we're taught to not offend people. We're taught to, to be nice. And so when we get that gut feeling, a lot of times our instincts is to ignore it because that seems rude. It seems rude for us to think like, oh, this person's not nice or, oh, this person's not, you know, I shouldn't be around this person. It's not healthy for me. Our instincts are to be nice to that person, give them the second chance, give them the third chance, give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. So 
we almost condition ourselves not to listen to our gut. And that's, that's part of the problem because we, we do, we start to question that and feel like, feel guilty about listening to it. And that's, it puts us in, in the position to fall victim to, to people who are toxic because they prey on that and not, and I'm not just saying men because females can be just as toxic. You can have just as toxic of a, of a best female friend, or a, you can have toxic relationships with a parent, a mother or whatever else. But mine specifically was a male, but it, it can be anyone. And those toxic people feed on that feeling that you have to be nice to them and they're going to continue to feed on it. They're never going to stop until you end it. Yeah. Establishing healthy boundaries. That's what it's all about. So we're going to throw in the description, a link to your book, to your author. Do you offer um, the self-defense classes? Are those done in person via Zoom? So I haven't figured out a way to do them via Zoom yet because um, I do like to make them hands-on so that there's a little bit yeah. of physical, um, you know, we go over the the real basics. As soon as I figure out how to do that via online, I'd love to start putting that out. Normally I do do it in person and haven't been able to do it in a while. Yeah. Um, but I, I would like to figure out a way to kind of morph that because knowing general safety and general self-defense, and I'm not talking, you don't have to be a black belt. But just to know that one of your biggest weapons that you can use is your voice is an important lesson to teach to to young women Mm -hmm. and women going into college and and just women in general. Um, And so it is something that I'd like to reach a lot more people with. And I just haven't figured out a platform to do that with yet. Okay, well, we'll work on that. (laughs) Give you some ideas. Um, well, awesome. So we'll get that in the link in the comments. And I know people can find you on Facebook. Um, obviously, you guys have to buy her book, um, especially if you know any. So you work exclusively with teens. I love the cover. <laughs> you know, just hold that up again. So for our audience that's on YouTube or across social media, um, you can get the book. He loves me not anywhere on the Internet. Right. Amazon. Barnes yep. Noble, what have you. Yep. I'll put the link in the description. And if you're listening on the podcast, check the description, get the book, share it with somebody that you know can use it. Don't be afraid. The only thing you should be afraid of is not to share it because you might be missing an opportunity to help somebody. And the worst thing they're going to say if you share it with them is, no, thank you. Hey, you did your job. You shared it, right? I always tell people if I had the care for cancer, I wouldn't keep it from you. So if I got something good, I'm not going to keep it from you. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I love your story. I love the way you shared it. I got chills and you're doing a fantastic job. I can just see so many things, so many people that you are touching um, just through our listeners and anyone else that might come in contact uh, with this, with this podcast. So thank Thank you. you Thank you. Thank you. That means means so much to me. Thank you. Yes. And thank you audience for listening. Again, if you know somebody who needs to hear this, please share this across any platform. And always remember, it's a matter of the heart.